He views males as men who are mature and powerful and authoritative. And then he also views females as girls who are young and immature and capricious. And he never once says men and women or boys and girls. It's always men and girls. So that's really what it boils down to. That's Nick's entire perception of the world around him. And that's all because of Fitzgerald's perception of the world around him. This episode of Common Furious is a roundtable discussion analyzing the quintessential American novel, The Great Gatsby, through feminist criticism, gender theory, and critical race theory. I am the host of this show, Suki Zane, my pronouns are she, her, hers, and today I am joined by my super awesome friends, Riley and Kylie. In the first part of our discussion, we'll read between the lines and each share our findings through the critical lens of our choosing, and in the second part of our discussion, we'll talk about whether we should still read The Great Gatsby, the function of the schools of critical theories themselves, and our thoughts on the recent GOP legislation banning critical race theory in public schools. So let's begin. As we all know, The Great Gatsby is a tragedy about the self-made millionaire Jay Gatsby and his failed pursuit of Daisy Buchanan slash The American Dream. Besides the central plot, the book offers some really iconic portrayals of female characters. So let's start from analyzing The Great Gatsby through feminist criticism. For those of you who don't know what feminist criticism is, feminist criticism is concerned with the ways in which literature and other cultural productions reinforce or undermine the economic, political, social, and psychological oppression of women. This school of theory looks at how aspects of our culture are inherently patriarchal, male-dominated, and aims to expose misogyny in writing about women, which can take explicit and implicit forms. Riley, could you share your findings about The Great Gatsby through that? Yeah, totally. So, basically, The Great Gatsby is obviously takes place during the 1920s, so this was around the first wave of feminism. So this was when, like, the women's suffrage movement was, and they were, like, women were earning the right to vote, and this was, like, women gaining more power in society. Um, this is the same time that um, Fitzgerald's book comes out, and it's not quite there. Um, <laughs> Fitzgerald, um, just as a person outside of his books, was not a very good person to women in general. Um, there are many things against him, some involving um, his wife, others involving other women in society. He's said some things that have been published in newspapers. Um, so in The Great Gatsby, he doesn't portray women very well. Um, he tries to mi minimize them and makes them look really bad. Um, some of like the examples, like women are cheaters and like really just like awful people is what he's trying to make them look like. He was really trying to constrain them within like societal standards of the time, which of course women did not have the rights and the equality that we have nowadays, but it was his writing only put us back in the past. He was not helping to move forward with the women's rights movements. He was trying to say, yeah, this doesn't matter. And he goes through this multiple times, um, talking about Myrtle. He has Wilson lock his wife up, and then he uses it in the book that, yeah, it's fine. Like, lock your wife up. It's not really a big deal. So it's just, he does a lot of questionable things in his writing that could be taken really awfully and especially now like why are you still 
having children read this book if it's really awful and clearly very old and has old thinking and yet you're praising it I think that's a little bit odd what do you guys think? I agree I think that Fitzgerald um he has he like you said a lot of his works are very problematic in terms of like the way he portrays women um I found a source online that said at least 17 of his published works star women under the age of 19 and he consistently describes them as like childish or dumb while still having them as objects of sexual attraction for the men in his stories and then also once they turn 20 they start having wrinkles around their eyes and weight around their hips and they lose all like appeal they had before and so it's not like Nick's perception of women that's the problem it's the way Fitzgerald portrays them it's consistent throughout all of his books the way that he treats women he thinks that they're only good when they're 19 you know it's like they're prizes almost like they're not like real people yes they're just something to be won I have a quote about that if I can find it um he describes Daisy and Jordan as quote-unquote silver idols weighing down their own white dresses He treats them as trophies or prizes, and they're, like, to be collected and displayed. And then the white dresses are sort of, like, a symbol of purity, so they're, like, pure and innocent until they're not. And it serves, like, Nick, or it serves Fitzgerald better for them to not be innocent. Oh, and let's go back to the iconic, iconic quote, where it's the, um, I'm glad it's a girl, and I hope she'll be a fool. That's the best thing a girl can be in this world, a beautiful little fool. I'm sorry, it's just to me, that's, like, a little bit, wow, like, what are you saying? Like, you're saying the girl should be like, a fool? Like, ignorance is bliss. Yeah. Like, I don't really think in that way, but they're saying, like, ignorance is bliss, and then they're also, like, portraying women as, like, very emotional, but at the same time shouldn't be emotional. Like, it's just very contradictory. Everything that Nick kind of says, he goes, like, back and forth. It's confusing how Fitzgerald portrays the society in the 1920s. Mm -hmm. I actually think the beautiful little fool quote is somewhat sympathetic to female characters because it was when Daisy was talking about her husband's infidelity and irresponsibility towards their uh, little daughter who interestingly no one talks about and Gatsby pretends that she doesn't exist throughout the book. However, as you said, Riley, this is the Roaring Twenties, which is when Uh, The 19th Amendment has been passed, and the idea of the new woman is emerging. And I think all three of the women in the book aren't actually the old ideal Madonna who cooks in the kitchen and takes care of the kids. They know how to party, how to have fun. But eventually, Fitzgerald takes on this narrative of the new woman and turns it into very negative portrayal and critique. Daisy is this kind of Becky-like spoiled murderer, and Jordan is very dishonest, she cheats in her games, and Myrtle, of course, she is a gold digger, and she's very lousy, so it really somewhat reflects the anxiety around the new woman back in the time. Zelda Fitzgerald herself is a new woman, she's beautiful, she has high spirits, uh, but then she's also diagnosed with schizophrenia, so that kind of makes the relationship very complicated, and people think the Fitzgerald couple are the emblems of the Jazz Age, and uh, Fitzgerald himself describes Zelda as the first American flapper. So there's definitely some degree of appreciation there. But in general, I think the book, um, it portrays a new woman as someone who deserves to be punished. Yeah. Yeah, so it's definitely retreating it's, back to the old norms. 
it's like if they don't comply to what men want, like, they deserve to be punished, kind of. And every man's idea was, like, bouncing off another man's. Like, it wasn't just, like, oh, I think women should be like this. It was, like, everybody had something to say about what a woman should be. Mm -hmm. And so it created this really confusing idea of what, like, women should be at the time. And so I think it caused, like, a lot of problems in the book because they're supposed to be, like, all good for their husband, but at the same time, they're, like, cheating. I'd like to go back to something both of you said about the punishment that the women in this book face, because it ties in really nicely to my um, my critical lens, so unless you guys have something, something else you want to say. Uh, so my critical lens was gender slash queer theory. I focused more on gender theory than um, queer theory in that I didn't talk about sexuality more than I talked about gender identity. So in The Great Gatsby, um, Nick's portrayal of men is vastly different from his portrayal of women, specifically with the language he uses in his narration. Um, and the language he uses always objectifies and infantilizes women in 1920s American society. Um, and then Nick makes a lot of assumptions about people he encounters throughout the book, which sort of sets the stage for how that character is going to exist and change throughout the book. It all depends on what Nick's first thoughts of them are. And Nick's prejudices are sort of a microcosm of gender norms in his society, and Fitzgerald punishes characters who break said gender norms. So it's not just that he punishes the women, it's that he punishes the women who don't conform to societal standards, and that women are supposed to be submissive and men are supposed to be dominant, and anyone who breaks it faces punishment for their actions. So Nick places all the men in his life on a pedestal. He looks up to them constantly, even before he even met Gatsby. Gatsby, he called him majestic. So he idolizes him from the very start. And then he also idolizes Dan Cody, who is sort of like Gatsby's mentor, um, even though he's never even met him. But just because he's a man and he it matters a lot to Gatsby, he puts them up on like this pedestal and he's like, he can do no wrong. And then Myrtle also... So Nick isn't the only one who like excuses any faults in someone because they're male. So when Myrtle finds out that her husband thinks that she's cheating, but he won't do anything about it, she like is outraged that he isn't as angry as she thinks he should be. So she tells him to beat her um, and throw her down and beat her. She calls him a coward. So she sees his passiveness and submissive submission as cowardice and begins to hurt, uh, begs him to hurt yeah, her patriarchal because wife. that's how she believes a real man should act. So their entire entire society excuses and even expects men to abuse the women in their lives. That's sort of how men are expected to be in society. Now, the way women are supposed to be is very different. He, Nick, views all the women he encounters throughout the book as objects and expects them to be honest, to be dishonest. Um, Nick believes that, quote, dishonesty in a woman is a thing you can never blame deeply, end quote. So he expects deceit from women. He's not surprised when he finds out Jordan cheats at golf. But because Nick is such an unreliable narrator, it's not actually clear whether or not Jordan truly cheats or if Nick just wants a reason to dislike her because she's so likable in every other aspect. And then Nick also claims he is one of the few honest people that he has ever known, which is dumb because he was just inconsistent in his narration, like, that same page. So that was one of the things that I noticed when I was reading. It's like, you're not honest. You just think you are. 
so that's that's one of the things that Nick does that pissed me off when I read this book honestly um he also deems them scarcely human which is a direct quote from the book um because he thinks he calls women flowers and he like I said before he refers to Daisy and Jordan as the silver idols and he doesn't see them as anything other than trophies and also when he's um listing the patrons of Gatsby's parties over the summer he claims to list every guest, but for the most part, he only lists the men. He views the women as extensions of their male partners and their only arm candy or property and not true guests. Uh, he also almost never calls women by their name, which is something that I can go into more if you'd like, but I'm going to just keep that one brief. Um, he also views them as like animals or pets. He calls some women puppyish and then... Mr. Wilson locks his wife up in his room and he like cages her up like a zoo animal. She's not to be trusted with her own freedom. Um, yeah, he Fitzgerald writes the women in his books as very weak and childish. And he writes the men who genuinely love their wives as weak and childish. Um, and like uh, Nick's perception of the world boils down to like one phrase he uses throughout the book which is men and girls he views males as men who are mature and powerful and authoritative and then he also views females as girls who are young and immature and capricious and he never once says men and women or boys and girls it's always men and girls so that's really what it boils down to that's nick's entire perception of the world around him and that's all because of Fitzgerald's perception of the world around him. It's all just like stereotypes. Like if you look into pretty much any part of the book, there's like a stereotype being fulfilled, like a 1920s mm-hmm. stereotype, which makes sense because it's a book from the 1920s. But even then, like there was radical people then and Fitzgerald like completely left those people out. Like he just didn't even want the radical people in the book because society was at that time like really starting to branch out like it wasn't just like this is the one idea of people and like this is what you should be and so they got rid of like the other people and like how other people feel yeah i like to talk about the car crash actually because that's really important to both nick and fitzgerald's perception of women so the masculine women face punishment for like pushing the boundaries of gender roles and there's two sides of the crash daisies and myrtles On Daisy's side, she became the first woman in the book to ever drive a car. Throughout the rest of the book, men have always been in the driver's seat. Um, This is the first time where Daisy has complete control over her own life, as well as the the men in her life. So this is Daisy's moment of control. It could have been like a moment of independence and like coming of age, where Daisy learns to take charge of her own life. But instead, she ends up killing Myrtle. And Myrtle's side is actually important, too. She becomes the dominant one in in her relationship for a few moments and she begs her husband to hit her because she sees an abusive husband as better than a submissive husband and so she runs into the road and she thinks it's tom who is one of the masculine men in the book and she thinks he can help her but because daisy's the one driving and not tom she ends up getting run over um, and so it reestablishes the power dynamics in the great gatsby which is dominant men and submissive women yeah and also just on a literary note i think the car crash scene is especially interesting because it is the most gruesome depiction in the entire book. Fitzgerald throughout the book uses a lot of metaphors and flappy language, but this is the only scene that he just describes the raw blood dripping from her dead body. So, of course, from a Marxist lens, it would be 
uh, symbolizing the upper class crashing over um, the Valley of Ashes. But if we see it through the gender construct, this scene represents the harshest punishment towards the character that's most far away from ideal in the spectrum of gender construct. I would actually argue that Myrtle has quite a lot of agency in her attitude, despite being a poor woman who's the character who's at the bottom of society in the entire book. She asks for things. She's loud. She demands things. She uh, uses the men in her life to climb up the social ladder. However, this dishonorable way of dying is a way, it's Fitzgerald's way of saying, you should keep it down a notch because this is not what a good woman is. Not to mention that Nick himself consistently despises Myrtle. Um, upon first visit, he described her as like completely devoid of any beauty. And the beauty that he talks about is the upper class, you know, daisy um, kind of beauty. But the beauty that Myrtle represents that Tom values is raw sexuality. So this is Nick's way of saying raw sexuality is ghetto and therefore not worthy of being appreciated as ideal womanhood. And I think it's especially sad because this kind of discussion is extended till today around um, describing and discussing the beauty of white women and women of color, especially black women. And then I'd like to also talk a little bit more about uh, Nick being drawn to Jordan. I think there's a sense of identifying with Jordan going on there uh, regarding his dishonesty, because I think Nick knows deep down that he's dishonest. And upon a queer reading, Nick is the more feminine guy in the book and Jordan is the more masculine woman. So Nick's being drawn to masculinity, I don't think it's just in the sense of seeing women as inferior. Um, because I remember when I was first reading this book, upon Tom's entrance, Nick gave a very detailed, juicy depiction of his body. However, throughout the book, there's actually little to none depiction of Daisy's actual physique even though she's the main girl in the story. There are metaphors, but there's not much about her actual body shape or curves. So through a queer lens, this could be saying that Nick has homoerotic feelings and he has to bury it saying that, oh, I'm so honest and the women are the ones who are cheating in a kind of overcompensating way. But it also could be just he sees masculinity as more superior and he's drawn to that. Also, the book itself is sort of meant to be Nick's narration of that summer. So it's not like, so the author is Nick within the book's canon, if that makes sense. Um, and he's the, he cannot write that book, go back and read it, and then still think of himself as an honest person. He also leaves out a few parts of the story, like at the end of, I think, chapter one, um, in the party scene where they're in the apartment, he brings, um, what's his name? Mr. McKee. Mr. McKee, um, who's very drunk. He brings him back to his apartment, Mr. McKee's apartment, not Nick's. And they, it's implied that they sleep together, but it's not actually written out because instead of writing out that rest of the chapter, it's just a bunch of ellipses. It's like dot, 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 dot. And that was one thing that confused me when I read it the first time. I was like, did Fitzgerald not finish this book? But no, it's Nick. Nick left out that part of the narration because he doesn't want to think of himself as queer. And he also narrates Gatsby in a very queer-coded way. He calls him majestic and beautiful, and he's like infatuated him from the very start. So in my opinion, 
Nick Carraway is very, very gay, but he doesn't think he is, and so that's not how the book was written consciously. I agree that the choosing to cut out parts of the story reflect Nick's dishonesty. I remember that at the party, he's actually constantly turned off by girls. There was somebody's cousin, her name is Catherine, who tried to hit on him, and he just didn't respond. And the implication of the sexual relationship between Nick and Mr. McKee is absolutely valid because there's another detail in the same chapter where they're actually, I'm just going to read from the book. Come to lunch someday, he suggested as we ground down in the elevator. Where? Anywhere. Keep your hands off the lever, snapped the elevator boy. I beg your pardon, said Mr. McKee with dignity. I didn't know I was touching it. So that was a scene where they're in the elevator, and then there's a phallic connotation behind the lever, and the elevator boy's like, what are you two doing, two gay men? So from the queer theory, Nick's dishonesty can be seen as a tragedy of restraint, or even a survival strategy, I guess. Um, he calls himself a neutral observer, but selectively cut out parts of the story, and he's really concerned about his masculinity. What other people think of him. Yeah, for sure. And that could be a commentary of the queer struggle. And from my research, Fitzgerald himself is very, very homophobic. He sees homosexuality as immorality. And so the interaction between Mr. McKee and Nick could be a commentary of, or like using queer-coded language to imply that Nick is an immoral person who's not to be trusted. So that's also super problematic. I think it also totally could have been just Fitzgerald not seeing how queer it really was like it could have been him just thinking like we definitely think of it now as oh yeah that's totally queer but like in the 1920s mm, you wouldn't have really read that and be like that's gay like we don't know what was the norm in the 1920s because like it used to be like men could be affectionate with men and it wasn't really seen as feminine or gay or anything it's only like with the rise of the the gay rights movement that people started calling things out as gay and saying like, oh, well, that's gay, so let's stop doing it because we're straight, you know? It's, again, just the societal stereotypes of everything. Like, not everything has to be gay, but, like, a lot of things now, like, that you would probably consider normal back then or in a different time, you now would be like, oh, that's gay. So it's all just different perspectives. Yeah. Yeah, and I totally agree with the homoerotic depiction of Gatsby, Um, not just in the sense of majestic or beautiful. There's also a quote where Nick imagines Gatsby's brown, hardening body on the beach. So the focus on the male body is so much richer and more intense than the depiction of women's body in the book. There's also something I like to talk about that doesn't really apply to Gatsby because it's sort of after the time that it was published. Um, but there's this, th- there's this thing called the Hayes Code, and it was applied to mainly motion pictures, and it was basically a list of rules of things that you couldn't have in motion pictures because um, they were supposed to be like available and appropriate for public viewing. And a lot of the things that the Hayes Code prohibited was like queer depictions of queer characters. And so that's where the rise of queer coding came from. That's where we get the idea and the term for queer coding from. It's because a lot of queer filmmakers and a lot of filmmakers and actors back then were very, very queer. A lot of them would find ways to sort of create characters that are not explicitly queer, 
but they definitely have sort of queer undertones and that only people who identify as queer will pick up on them when they're watching the movie or reading the book. And so it's that's where we get the idea of queer coding from. And Gatsby was released in 1925, I think, so that's before the Hayes Code. But the reason that we're reading it in like a queer coded way is because of the Hayes Code. That's where we get the whole idea of characters being queer coded. So exactly. That's, yeah. So I don't think that, uh, I almost said Hemingway, I don't think that Fitzgerald knew what he was doing. I, I do think that Fitzgerald was straight, even if he was overcompensating a little bit. Like, there's a story about how he was accused of being gay, and so he had sex with a prostitute to prove he wasn't. Um, while he was married! <laughs> yeah, while he was he married. He also wrote a letter to his friends saying, oh, I'm so straight. Yeah. <laughs> so very concerned about his heterosexuality. Mm-hmm. And to echo a little bit about the Hayes Code, we see this all the time in modern media as well. Um, there are characters who are obviously queer, but to not upset the conservative viewers, filmmakers try to not oh, make it clear. I, I have a comment baiting on, on too. that. It's queer baiting, and one corporation that does a lot of this is Disney, Disney. specifically Marvel. Elsa. In, in, yeah, Elsa and Honey Marin and also... Um, the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, that whole TV show is very, very heavily queer coded, but they were never, it was never explicitly canonized. And so it's considered queer baiting by the queer community. But in recent news, as of yesterday, Loki is now officially canonically bisexual in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And he's also canonically gender fluid. So that's a huge step in the right direction for Marvel um, and Disney. They've been very explicit about people who they partner with are not allowed to um, point out any queer coding or any queer characters. They're, so they have this whole pride thing going on right now. It's June as we're recording this. Um, and they're like doing all the rainbow branding and the rainbow capitalism. But someone who rainbow they partner with... Rainbow so dumb. Sorry. Yeah, it is. Per, the people who they're partnering with have sort of spoken out recently and they've been like, we're not allowed to say that Bucky is bi. We're not allowed to say that we think that um, Tony Stark is pan or whatever, you know? And so there's very much that um, paradox of like, yeah, we support everyone. You can say happy pride to our characters as long as you don't call them gay, you know? It's also like, like Suki was saying, it's the whole you have to keep everyone happy. So to come... out with like you also have to do it slowly because you want to see how people react and everything but if you were to say like all at once like all these characters are gay you would have a big problem Mm -hmm. because conservatives or like homophobic or transphobic people would come attacking you and boycott your brand and stuff like that yeah they can't risk stuff like that and like while they're a huge company they it's too big of a risk yeah conservatives don't want to be don't want their children to be corrupted by gay characters but gay characters can also be weaponized especially with works that are popular among young queer women so like harry potter and marvel like captain america and stuff and k-pop and boy bands and stuff like that it can be very much used as either an advertisement strategy or a defense strategy we saw this with jk rowling she was accused of being a transphobe, which she is. She's a TERF, which stands for Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminist. Um, and once all the accusations came out about her being homophobic and transphobic, 
she basically made an announcement saying that Dumbledore is gay, which, like, it was never written in the books. The books were never really queer-coded. The only queer-coded characters were Remus and Sirius, who did not end up canon. And so it's very much like a, yeah, we're not homophobic. Here's a gay character for you. So it's sort of used to, like, placate the people who are like, this is not okay. You're being homophobic by like not having characters because you know gay people exist they still exist even when they're in books and movies you know and like the interpretation of characters also changes like if you look at the interpretation of characters in books versus like their movies or tv shows they're very different Mm -hmm. and so a lot of the queer baiting i feel like goes into the movies more than the books but that's just like my personal opinion on that um by the way on that note uh the 2013 film adaptation of the great gatsby which is probably the most well-known version starring leo dicaprio in that movie there are a lot of hinting at nick being straight so there are a lot of moments where nick who's played by toby Maguire, stares at women in a sexual way so i think it goes both ways Mm -hmm. because that's really the case in the book especially given that you have that not wanting to uh, upset conservative viewers Mm. factor at play Due to time limits, we'll cut our discussion into two parts. Thanks for listening to this first part about reading The Great Gatsby through feminist criticism, gender theory, and queer theory, and an extended discussion about modern queer representation in media. The next episode will be the second part about critical race theory and the current Republican CRT ban, going deeper in our discussion about whether we should still read The Great Gatsby. Tune in each month for original content about your favorite social justice topics, and as the saying goes, Keep calm and rage on.